certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. Today, almost a dozen witnesses recalled the night Kira Glennon disappeared. Some remembering a woman matching Kira's description, leaning into a car, talking to a man. The court was told one person said she might be the next girl to go. Hi everyone, welcome to week four of Claremont in Conversation. I'm Natalie Bongiolo, joined by the West's Tim Clark, calling in from Supreme Court. Hi guys. Hello, and we've got today criminal lawyer Damien Cripps. Hello, welcome Good back. Good afternoon everyone, nice to be here. So, Tim, today was all about Kira, and we're actually just going to start by playing listeners a short piece of audio. Now this is from a police reenactment video which was made shortly after her disappearance in 1997. Did you see anything that might help trace Kira's footsteps? We do know that at around a quarter past midnight, Kira was standing outside this computer shop on Stirling Highway. A nearby restaurant adjacent to the shop had closed for the evening. While Hungry Jack's over the road traded late as on a typical Friday. Many people were in and around Claremont that night. You may have been in the area or driving along Stirling Highway towards the Bayview Terrace intersection. Did you notice Kira in her black skirt and white fitted top with her black jacket tied around her waist and knotted at the front? So, Tim, I guess um, you found out today that it turns out many people did see Kira that night. Mm. Yeah, and um, and all those mentions in that video there were basically spot on, um, according to the witnesses that we've we've heard from um, today. We heard from a lady who actually worked in that restaurant that was mentioned in the video. We heard from a lady who actually remembered distinctly Kira walking with a with the jacket um, around her waist and we heard from well virtually everyone describing her her white top her dark wavy hair her black skirt um her, her very uh, you know distinctive um figure um in the early hours of claremont um, and we basically plotted um her exit from the, ho- the continental hotel um all the way down bayview terrace turning right onto sterling highway and then as you said in your intro nat this this car that was seen by at least two people parked on the side of the road and a young woman fitting Kira's description, um, leaning inside, seemingly um, talking to the driver. And I guess, I mean, so many of these people who did see the this person matching Kira's description, I suppose, um, you know, with Kira's disappearance, there was such a heightened awareness by this stage and there was this campaign and mm. and and what have you and I, I guess people were taking notice if they were in the area they were keeping an eye out they were looking around yeah well that's what that's what we've heard so far in the opening was was that people were on well we obviously know people were on high alert um but a lone female um an attractive lone female at, at that time of night alone in claremont um did apparently draw um comment and 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 draw particular notice from from 
various members of the public, who then once it was it was you know evident that Kira was uh, was missing, um, and that particular reenactment was done, um, it brought forth um, numerous bits of information, um, and once again all the, all these years later. Um, all, all the various people that were in and around Claremont on that night, either driving or walking or drinking or, or being entertained, um, came together in one courtroom to, to, to give their memories sort of back-to-back, really. Yeah. Tim and Nat, I'm, I'm interested, not legally, but as a community member, mm. first time I've heard that audio for a long time, mm. yeah. um, and I'm not sure that that would have encouraged me to ring up Mm. Um, if I'd seen something, it's quite dramatic, and the music's quite dramatic, and um, I, and obviously, with, with the, as Tim uses the phrase um, so well, the tyranny of time. Maybe I look back on that and can't really remember what impact it had in 1997. But when I hear it now, I'm not sure that it would compel me to ring up simply because it, it, it seems a little dramatic. And I know it's a dramatic circumstance. Yeah. I understand that. Yeah. Um, but. If, if, and I'm sure there were media outlets and there were police pleadings with a simple plea to, if you saw anything, yeah. contact us. But this might have been something that was done um, subsequent to all of those things to try to, to drag up memories for people to make them think about what they'd actually done that night. Um, do we know, Tim, perhaps you can help us, do, do we get any insight into how many people were actually would, said that they responded to this audio? Yeah, at least one, Damien. Um, the first one, actually, last week, um, Mrs. Mabba, um, she she specifically referenced the the reenactment, and that had, mm. that had jogged her memory. Um, and to jog listeners' memory, that was the lady late last week who said she'd saw, seen a woman very much like Kira walking down Sterling Highway, and then saw this car parked in a side road, and the and the and the, and a, and a, a fella chap stood behind that car. Um, just a little way down the street. Um, so she certainly said that, that that was what jogged her memory and that was what prompted um, her to, to ring. Um, but the other ones today, no one specifically referenced it, but mm-hmm. um, I mean, you, uh, I'm sure many, many listeners, local listeners will remember the the absolute media frenzy that kicked off after Kira had gone missing, which, it, which was already pr- pretty high after... Sarah and Jane's disappearance, obviously. Um, and so I, th- I think you get the impression it was just a general sense of on the night people were uh, noticing or, you know, or noticed a lone woman um, on her own after midnight in the Claremont area. And then certainly after the news broke that Kira was, was missing, um, it, it sounds like the police were absolutely inundated with pieces of information. But these 12 sightings, we had 11 today and we're going to get one more tomorrow, yeah. were, the abs- were the absolute sort of um, the peak of that information and, and, and the the stuff that they basically brought together now as as part of a prosecution. I think the um, uh, it, it goes to show that people were on high alert, and that's um, evident from the cook who was at the Thai restaurant, who mm. really sadly foreshadowed what was to come. Yeah, well, it was actually her boss, so they were they were getting the lift home. They worked in the in a Thai restaurant, literally on that corner there. They just locked up for the night. Um, the, the workers whose evidence was read in today, she was getting the lift home from her boss, um, and they they basically passed this, this lone woman uh, to, uh, together. They'd seen her as they were sat in the car, 
and the boss basically commented, oh, you know, she's sort of got quite a revealing sort of dress on. She could be the next one to go. And um, mm. if um, if it was indeed Kira that they saw, and we've no, no nothing to doubt that it wasn't, um, then, yeah, there were sort of very um, prophetic words, unfortunately. And one of the other witnesses today, um, they yelled out at Kira or the person they thought resembled Kira? Yes, yes, and um, they didn't actually say what they'd yelled out, but there was certainly something said through the window. Um, and the three um, witnesses that we're expecting tomorrow, which we've discussed before, the so-called Burger Boys, mm-hmm. um, we'll, we will hear, if it goes to what Miss Barbara Galloway opened on, that they actually um, yelled something across the road to her as well, something along the lines of, you're mad if, you, if you're hitchhiking. Um, and uh, they will describe the car and that um, that the other witnesses today described her leaning into a sort of white um, station wagon um, that looked like a Commodore, which we've obviously heard um, so much about in the last in the last four weeks. Tim, Miss um, Mullen gave her evidence today. Is that correct? Yes, yes, yep. she did. Did she get cross examined as well, Tim? Yes, yes, they all did briefly. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, Tim, can I just ask in relation to Miss Mullen? Yeah. Um, you've told us that to some extent um, she'd given evidence that she yelled out of the car mm. at what someone fitting the description of Kira had been. Did mm-hmm. in cross in cross examination, even though we might not have heard about what it was that she yelled, did we find out anything about what her motivation for yelling out the car was? No, no, we didn't actually, Damien. It was it was sort of one of those moments that we've had quite a few of during the trial that have sort of sort of raised a question and then not really answered it. Um, Mr. Jovic's, a lot of Paul Jovic's cross-examination today was just, just to sort of fine-tune a few details, maybe check, cross-check some sort of memories of times and exactly where... Um, they, they think they saw the woman that, that, that resembled Kira, um, but he was um, he, uh, say he wasn't really drilling down into into major details. What, what's interesting about the Miss Miss Mullen yelling out of the car is that um, if you were to say that it was a gentleman yelling out of the window of the car, we might <laughs> yeah, inti- yeah. we might we might find that a little bit more understanding, and, and that's without being disrespectful to the men of Western Australia or visiting here. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting that it's Miss Mullen that's called out of the car, and um, it'd be interesting to know what her motivation for that was, but we're yeah. obviously not going to find that out. I mean, I, I guess if you were to speculate, you, you can't help but think it's someone saying something along the lines of what the Burger Boys were saying, which is, what are you doing, or why are you by yourself, or... Mm-hmm. You know, don't you know that you know girls are disappearing or something along those lines? If you were to speculate, yeah. And we've also discussed previously that Kira had only been back in the country a matter of days. Um, the, the the occasion that she was out on the Friday was actually it was, she'd only gone back to work on the Monday, and, and St Patrick's Day was coming up. So it was yeah. basically a reunion sort of drinks with some some of her closer colleagues. Um, and you know we have speculated that the fact that she had been out of the country for basically the whole time that, um, that certainly that Sarah and Jane had gone missing, and so whether she was um, totally uh, aware or up to speed on what had been happening, and, and certainly the atmosphere around Perth and, and Claremont in particular, um, I, and I suppose it's, it is speculation, but um, I think it'd be fair speculation to say that she, she probably wasn't, given that she'd only been been back in. The country, um, mm. yeah, a matter of days. The witnesses who um, saw a young woman leaning into the car, mm. speaking to a man, 
Were there any descriptions of the man? Uh, yes, there were. In fact, there was an, uh, another sketch produced today in court, Matt, um, by the um, by the second of those witnesses. Um, she described how she was coming back from uh, coming back from the movies, um, uh, a movie night with her husband in Perth. They were on their way um, back to their home near Fremantle, and so they were taking Stirling Highway south. Um, and they pulled off for the lights, and then there was this car that was basically in the left-hand lane, so they had to literally pull around it to get mm-hmm. round. She was in the uh, passenger door, so she was. She basically said she was only like a, uh, maybe a meter, a meter and a half away from the driver as as they rolled slowly past, and she got a good enough look at the driver to actually then be contacted later by the police to to um, to concoct a uh, an identikit picture um which was shown in court um but hasn't been released publicly yet so you won't see it online or in the paper tomorrow um but hopefully you might see it later in the week um the reason for that was that justice stephen hall the judge um said that because he's got still got witnesses to this scene coming up he didn't want their um evidence potentially um uh, influenced by seeing this, um, seeing this photo kit in um, the identical in uh, in print, which is uh, which is fair enough. So yeah, so she got a very good look at him and um, described him as um, youngish, mid twenties, handsome, dark haired. Um, couldn't see what he was wearing much because he was in the car, um, but obviously got a really good look at him. Um, and I've got to say, the photo fit that was um, that was shown in court. Um, it was not unlike um, Mr. Edwards. The hair mm-hmm. was a bit long um, at the back, um, not unlike the other um, sketch that has been produced in court previously. Um, I was wondering if it maybe looked similar to that sketch. Um, no, it was a little bit different to that. It was it was a hand drawn drawn one um, rather than one of those sort of amalgam ones that we think the other one was. Um, and she also got a very good look at the lady who she was convinced was Kira, um, and was you know had a very clear description of what she was wearing and her hair and her um, demeanour and uh, build and all that things, all that type of thing. So, um, so yeah, they were they were you know given that this we're, we're again we're talking twenty two years on from you know mere seconds in uh, past midnight uh, on a weekend, um, a lot of the. Um, a lot of the uh, descriptions were quite were quite mm. detailed, and there was another witness who also saw um, her leaning into a car and talking to a man. Did that person have any descriptions of the man? Yeah, not 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 quite as detailed, but right. but still, um, they were they were more they were more um, accurate. Well, accurate. They were more precise on what car they thought it was. They said it was it was certainly a white car and a, a Commodore type of car. They recognised particularly the the lights. Um, but they didn't um, see the um, driver so much, but um, did see the, the young woman um, leaning in. That first witness actually described her as, as almost appearing to get in or just just, just to get about to get into that car. Um, and, and certainly um, was very sure that there was an interaction going on between um, between the woman and the driver. Damien, um, given there's um, obviously lots of description of the woman who people presume to be Kira, but very little of the man, um, what does that do for the prosecution case? It, well, it, it's a, that's a difficult question to answer, Nat. I'll tell you why. <laughs> because the... One of the things I was thinking then when I was just listening to Tim is that in matters like this, 
we hear so much information about so many different people and we get led and Tim, I'm interested in your input on this and I'm not going to um, bail out on your question. I'll come back to that. Um, do you feel, Tim, in the court that when you're hearing these stories uh, that, that people are telling about when they're uh, casting their mind back to this time, does it feel like you get taken on a different journey away from what the question in issue actually is? Um, a little bit, Damien. Um, but, I mean, but also, I mean, we've talked about it in previous podcast obviously the prosecution is trying to paint a f- as full a picture as they can um but i mean whether as tom percy said quite pointedly last last week whether it goes to proving whether that man in that car was mr edwards or not well i mean that's for the judge to decide in six months time but it's certainly not a you know a, a definite description i mean this this um, sketch is the closest that we got to that um, and, and obviously with three more witnesses to come tomorrow we think um, so does it take it on huge uh, huge steps no but uh, uh, incrementally I, I think it's just a, you know another few layers um, of, of circumstantial on top of the you know the many thousands of circumstantial yeah. layers that the prosecution hope to build over the over the journey so in it the, the issue is if you in my view, if you were to say that you saw a woman fitting the description of Kira on the night that was the night in question, I think that most people would accept that. Yes. If you were then to say you saw a person following behind who was a male, that eliminates on that one account all the females in Western Australia at the time. So now we're left with the males. Yes. And then we say the person had was six foot one that it eliminates all you know like it's it's such a great story to build over so many times so in answer to your question that what i think it does is which is not that dissimilar to what tim had just said that every time somebody adds something to the picture so it's not just a male but it's a male that's about six foot one inches fitting the age in the time at the the place, the, all those little things keep adding to the jigsaw puzzle. Keep yes. you know increasing the likelihood that this piece does fit here. So, all the while, in my view, from what we've heard so far, we've we've heard some um, descriptions about someone who uh, was seen in and around the time um, that, that's in question. Uh, but we've heard a lot of different descriptions of a lot of different things. So, um, I think what Tim is saying is right that the person who's making the decision has to take on board what they can and in six months time accumulate all that together and weigh up whether there's a reasonable doubt or whether it, yeah. you know it's, it's overwhelming it's not an easy job to do well it's the missing pieces of the jigsaw puzzle that make it po- difficult right not the pieces you can find <laughs> it's the missing pieces of the jigsaw puzzle that create reasonable doubt yes um, and that, well, I mean, there's amongst other things, but um, if if and obviously I haven't been there at the trial, um, listening like Tim has, and he's our first-hand information, um, and has been doing a, ma- a magnificent job, I must say, Tim, keeping me up to speed as well. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, probably half of Western Australia, most of Australia, and around around the world, the world. You know, around the world, he is. <laughs> um, he, he has done an astounding job, and I've got to say. This is not just to build him up, but 
I have been astounded with the, his ability to uh, get all this information and translate it into terms that people can understand and, and, and actually utilise, me included, Tim, so well done. No, that's all right. It's giving me a headache some nights. But, uh, <laughs> I'm sure it has. <laughs> you love it. He actually, actually yeah. really loves it. <laughs> you, can, you can tell in the way that you that your detail you're going to. So, um, and and in, in to, right to go back to the, the, the answer to the question, that I think that... Um, there's always going to be a problem if, if for a prosecution trying to put together a case um, in these circumstances, but I don't think that there's any issue about that. I think that, yeah. you know, that it's, it's, it's a difficult job and that's why certain people get that job. So um, not only did you have these multiple witnesses coming through the court today, you also heard a lot of written statements were read into the court as well. Did it feel today as though you were almost, you know, um, tying up some of the loose ends? <clears throat> yeah, I think we, I mean, we, we were made aware at the end of last week that we're definitely getting towards the end of the so-called civilian witnesses. So that's that's witnesses that aren't police, that aren't experts, that aren't mm-hmm. doctors. Um, and uh, they, they were basically um, <clears throat> wrapping up a few things today. So, for instance, we heard from um, a couple of workers, uh, bank workers, talking about Sarah's bank accounts and the, the last withdrawals that she made from her account, um, and also from a passport person that um, basically confirmed that Sarah hadn't left the country after the 26th of, uh, of January. Yeah. We heard from the father of the Huntingdale um, victim and his description of what had happened on that night, the fact that he'd woken up to screams. Um, he was so shocked that he ran, actually ran into the door of, oh. her da- of his daughter's bedroom because it had been closed and it, it never was closed and he was in such a hurry to get there um, that he ran into it. Um, we heard from um, a, a person who started their apprenticeship with Bradley Edwards at Telstra and describing how they were both issued these knives um, that um, we think are going to become quite crucial um, a little bit later down the track. So this was um, a knife that was in their toolbox that they were given as an apprentice? Yes, correct. So um, as, as Telstra apprentices, I um, don't, know, don't know if it happens now, but it certainly happened then that they were given the tools of the trade. They were given a toolbox and one of the one of the tools in that box was a knife, um, a, a green-handled knife they were right. originally given. This is back in sort of 86, 87. But then about eight weeks later, um, that knife was recalled because apparently it was too too sharp. It was too pointy. And so they were then given a different type of knife, which is this wooden-handled knife that we've heard a little bit about and we're going to hear, hear a lot, much, lot more about. And he described this, how this knife looked and how long it was. And there were two different actual types of this wooden-handled knife. Mm-hmm. And the second type that he described was the same as this, the type of knife that was um, basically found on the um, on the road, the same road on the same day that Jane's body was discovered. Um, Yes. So that was basically an establishment sort of statement. Yes, this is where we got these knives, this is when we got these knives, this is how we got these knives. And then later on, when after Christmas, when we get to the discovery of Jane's body, um, uh, Miss Barbara Gallo said there's going to be a lot more evidence about this actual knife that was discovered on the road um, and how it compares. Now, they were issued with a second knife because the first one um, was too sharp, as you said. Mm. Did they have to hand that first one back in? Yes, well, apparently they did. Um, but interestingly, this, this chap, this fellow apprentice of Mr Edwards, um, described how he remembered that Mr Edwards had said that he'd lost 
his um, early issue knife, his first issue knife, and he couldn't um, he, he, he couldn't find it. He couldn't, uh, so it needed to be replaced. But um, so that was just a, an interesting tidbit, mm. but um, not one that goes to the heart of the case because we know that it, that it was a different type. Yeah, yeah. It was a different type of knife that was found at the scene. So, whatever happened to that knife? Um, once again, another question that probably never be answered. Um. In 1990, um, obviously, there was the Hollywood Hospital incident. Mm. And today you also had a statement read into the court by the security guard who detained Edwards after that assault. Yes, correct. And that was that was probably the most interesting of all the statements that were read in this afternoon. Um, so this was the security guard that had worked at Hollywood Hospital um, or did work at Hollywood Hospital for 20 years, which spanned 1990, which is when this incident with Edwards occurred when he grabbed the lady from behind, yes. tried to drag her into the toilet cubicle. Um, and this, this um, security guard basically described how he'd um, answered the emergency call, came running, um, found the woman and a staff member together, both distressed, and then went into a little anteroom and found Edwards basically with his head in his hands, sat, sat on a padded bench, mumbling to himself that he, he, don't, he didn't know why he did it um, and um, he didn't know what he was going to do with himself. Mm. And it was quite a vivid sort of um, uh, remembrance of, of how he'd come across Edwards and, and how Edwards was um, at the time. Um, that, that he'd basically been caught red-handed or as good as red-handed. Um, and the the last sort of portion of the statement was that Edwards was basically saying to the security guard, what am I going to do? What am I going to do about work? <laughs> and the security guard basically saying, mate, that's, that's the least of your worries. Um, and it, as it turned out, it wasn't it, because we, yeah. know, we know that he was able to get, uh, get the charge or dealt with within a week and um, and was back at work. Um, That's the week right. After that. So, um, and of course, so it, we also know that that incident is nowhere on on his record, on his work record. Well, with, yeah, there's no, there's, there doesn't appear to be any official Telstra or Telecom records detailing that that um, they were aware of that. Um, which was which may be a more more a record keeping bookkeeping thing than that the actuality of it. Um, once again, we don't know whether whether we'll find out is is, is unclear. Um, but what was clear that was you know that Edwards was obviously um, distressed and and mm. distraught at what he'd done. Um, but you know, reading between the lines of that security guard statement, it would appear that his his, his sort of one of his first thoughts was himself and and what was going to happen to and to his employment rather than um, what had happened um, to his victims. So um, so yeah, that was that was just another interesting window in, into uh, into that particular incident in 1990. Okay, so I guess you'll get a few more of these sorts of statements tomorrow, um, and we may very well be wrapping up this lot. Yes, well, that's what we were informed this afternoon that it could be um, it could be the final sitting day before Christmas tomorrow. They've rattled through the witnesses, um, all these witnesses, over a hundred now we've counted um, over four weeks, which is uh, I'm sure Damien will agree is a, is a is a absolute world record pace for uh, for a murder trial. I'm, um, I'm asti- I've been astounded, Tim. I had yeah. to, to have gotten where we've gotten to now. Yeah. After. Is it three weeks? Yeah, three yeah, weeks well, and one day. Three weeks and one day, yes. It's unbelievable. But it's good. It's good for the state and it's good for the the, the yeah. families, the people that are looking for the answers. So there's good progress being made. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the prosecution has re- have, and the defence, to be fair, have really 
try to get as many of the civilian witnesses done as, as quickly as they can um, for all manner of reasons. You don't want witnesses hanging around court day after day after day. You don't want to have the stress of having a court sort of summons hanging over maybe over the holiday period, um, particularly for um, witnesses close to the to the victims. Um, and so, yeah, so we've so we've we've rattled through them. Um, so tomorrow could be the last sitting day. Um, the judge has already agreed that we won't then get into the more forensic stuff, which is mm-hmm. basically going to be concerning um, the discovery of um, Jane and Kira's bodies, the postmortems, um, and then the forensic uh, detail around those. We're not going to get into those until after Christmas. Um, it was Mr. Yovich's sort of um, gentle suggestion that maybe we'd better they'd be better starting afresh and and the judge was quite willing to accommodate that. Okay, well a couple of listeners questions before we go. These are for you um, Damien. So one listener would like to ask, assuming Bradley Edwards is acquitted of all three murders, if in the future the body of Sarah Spears is discovered with definitive new evidence linking the murder to the acquitted Bradley Edwards, could he be tried a second time for Sarah Spears' murder? It's a fantastic question. Mm. Um, and I'm sure anyone listening to the cast will now have the cogs in their mind turning over because we've got so, yeah. so many um, uh, Hollywood stories about, you know... Um, We're what, thinking double jeopardy, right? Of course, <laughs> which is not actually um, legally... Uh, something that we look at the same here. It's a little bit different, but from what my understanding would be in this circumstance, there would be applications made um, because that would be a significant find, I, I would have thought. Yes. Y- y- it would be difficult to explain to the people of Western Australia, oh, this person's been acquitted of this, but now we've found um, this evidence. So I would have thought that there would have been um, applications made by the prosecution in that sense. And I have to say, I've never been in this situation. This is a, it's, it would be an unusual situation to be in. So, not something I've considered till I've, I've seen this question today. But I think um, the answer to the question would be, even though the applications could be made and a lot of arguments we, would be made about it, it would be unlikely, in my per- view, that yeah. you'd be able to have that trial again. Now, now I don't know, Nat, your vocabulary is pretty good. Do you think that you can... You can pronounces it a little bit of French or a bit of Latin in that? Oh, probably not. <laughs> Tim, uh, Tim probably knows what that word is. Um, or, you read it out for us. I'll, I'll have a try. So what this word word is, Tim, is essentially saying that once you've been acquitted, um, you know, you, 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 you can't be asked to come back and answer the same, um, the charge or tried for the same offence again, autre uh, fois acquit. Um, mm. which is Latin for the same thing. So um, it's certainly something that poses a significant question um, mm. because on the face of it, when I when I first read that question, I would have thought an application could be made. It's mm. definitive new evidence. But in the course of the cast, I've had the opportunity to do a little bit of research, and I think that given that principle, it might be very difficult for them. Yeah, there is the legal capability, though, isn't there, Damien? If, if compelling new evidence does arise... Then there is the is, there is the, the, the the possibility. He's shrugging his shoulders here, Tim. No. He's not sure. Well, no, it, it's uh, Tim. Let, because what I would say to you about that is, if you think about it, you might be in a position where you say, if that was the case, and and I, I'm, it's just my view and my opinion. Mm based on a little bit of research that I've done, wouldn't it be the case that the prosecution should have had all of these things in order before they brought the charge? 
that that's potentially the principle that causes some... Yeah. And I understand that logistically, that's just not possible at the moment because we don't have it. But the question, I mean, at some point, the prosecution have to say, OK, well, we think we've got enough we've got and we enough. think we've got everything yeah. that we're ever going to yeah. have, so we should run the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if, he was a, if, he, if this gentleman was acquitted, and what I should say about that too, Nate, is an acquittal in the true sense of the word means that the prosecution has been unsuccessful in proving beyond a reasonable doubt what they're alleging. So if they were unsuccessful in, in, in reaching that threshold, then should this person continually be able to just be brought back before the courts every time something new arises? Yes. I mean, and that, that's difficult. I mean, so all, that's why it's such a great question because yeah. there's a body of work that would have to go along with dealing with that situation when it arose. But there's a couple of things for all the listeners to consider there. The first thing is um, that there's a principle that says once you've been tried and or you've pled or you've been acquitted of something, you shouldn't be able to be brought back and be tried on it again. But like Tim says, that there is a legal process that someone could go through to make that application. And, and that'll be just something really, really great for the listeners to consider until the yes. next podcast. Definitely. Well, we've got one more for you, actually. Um, would it Justice Hall have read into the fact that Edwards originally pleaded not guilty to Huntingdale and Karakata, but pleaded guilty to them before the trial started? That, that's another really, really good question. That And now, look, um, the English language is fantastic. It is sometimes plays tricks on us. Would Justice Hall read into the fact that Edwards originally pleaded not guilty? What I take from that, just to clarify mm-hmm. for the listeners, is would Justice Hall take into his consideration yes. um, in determining the outcome of this trial, um, the fact that Edwards had originally pleaded not guilty to the Huntingdale and Karakata matters. Um, the answer to that question has to be no. Mm. Uh, it has to be no because uh, because he uh, is, is charged with considering these matters as standalone um, matters. However, there's a, a number of legal principles um, that Tim has been talking about throughout the course of propensity evidence p- plays into it, you know, what, um, but it's within someone's, there's a number of reasons why somebody can plead not guilty and there's a number of reasons um, and bases that they can do that. Um, so I think that, as I think that I've said before, of all of the people that I've encountered, Justice Hall would be one of the best people that um, to deal with this, not that it's my decision or my, um, I'm not charged with making, putting someone in that position, but he is in the, probably the only person that can answer that question. It's such a great question because in every court case that I ever deal with, I, one of the things that I'm always challenged about is, am I confident that the people around me can set aside and compartmentalise that and leave it alone to make the decision about that that they need to do? And I think that what people have to do is be confident that that's the job that people might be charged with and, that, and they'll be able to achieve that. Yeah. The, the question seems to, to me to be whether um, the fact that the accused person had originally pleaded not guilty to the Huntingdale and Karakata matters would have an impact on the judiciary's decision about them in relation to his guilt or otherwise of the the three charges before him. And my view on that would be that it's not relevant 
because yeah. it's he's pleaded guilty to those charges and they're separate in matters. The, the only thing that really can come before the court for consideration in relation to that is the propensity issue, which we've we've talked about before. In that, um, you know, his his propensity to, to do things that might be similar, not his pleading guilty or um, or otherwise. So essentially, the bottom line would stand that he's pleaded not guilty to these charges that are before the court at the moment, and that's what's being dealt with. Yes. Um, so we've ha we have been asked questions as to whether you know legal tactics are used and and what have you. So a, ta a tactics an interesting proposition because it, it, we're all, we're always talking tactics and tactics um, are essentially about us getting our clients to be in the best position that they can possibly be in given the circumstances that they're in. So it's a tactic to say let's not have this matter come before this court without the other matter because together we'll get consideration for mm. um, them both together. There's a number of tactics. Uh, my view is, and obviously I don't know because I'm not part of that team and I have anything to do with I wouldn't have thought this was a tactic. I would have thought this would, would have been um, something that was carefully considered and and on, on, on advice from counsel, this is, would have been the result and where that ended up. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, listeners, for those very difficult questions and thank you both for doing your best to answer them. Appreciating all your hard work there and appreciating all the feedback that we're getting. So back in court tomorrow for Tim. We'll see you uh, in a couple of weeks, Damien, after the Christmas break for court. And we look forward to chatting to you all tomorrow for Day 17 of Claremont in Conversation. We'll talk to you then. This podcast was hosted by Natalie Bongiolo, produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy, and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Audio files were provided from the archives of the Seven Network and the West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. Enjoying this podcast? If the story behind the headline matters to you, then you can count on thewest.com.au to deliver. For more on Claremont The Trial, follow the live blog, watch the nightly news updates, and sign up for daily email updates at thewest.com.au. Subscribe now for just a dollar a day at thewest.com.au.